If you would then please turn in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from the book of Jonah. So we'll be looking at chapter 3 and verses 5 to 9. Jonah chapter 3 and verses 5 through 9. Jonah chapter 3 verses 5 to 9. Brothers and sisters, if you would, hear with me then the reading of God's Word. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. One of the, the greatest sermons ever given by which God used it to convert a great many sinners is found in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, in Peter's sermon at Pentecost, what are we told? That 3,000 souls were brought into the, the kingdom of God that day. Now in Acts, what we need to see though is that we're only given a snippet. Right? We're given a, a summary of all that Peter said that day. And in fact, we're told that. We're told that in Acts chapter 2, verse 40. We're told that these words he spoke to the men of Israel and with many other words he bore witness to them and exhorted them. And we should expect that, shouldn't we? Right? We shouldn't expect the entirety of every conversation, of, of every encounter, of every sermon in detail to be laid out for us in the text. But oftentimes it's just summaries. It's just pieces, it's just parts, so that we might benefit from them, that they are recorded for us. And I think that the same is more than likely true with what we see here in the prophet Jonah, who along with Peter delivers one of the greatest sermons ever to be recorded for us in Scripture, by which God uses it to save sinners in mass. Last week in verse 4, we're told that Jonah calls out to the Ninevites, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah told us in verse 3 that that Nineveh was a a three-day journey. It took three days to walk through Nineveh as Nineveh was about 60 miles in circumference. And so I don't think that it's very likely that as Jonah walked that first day, as we're told in verse 4, that that all he said were these same eight words on repeat over and over and over again. It's, it's highly likely that this is a summary of what it was that God told Jonah to go into Nineveh and to declare. And yet, brothers and sisters, what a message this is, isn't it? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It made me wonder, you know, what if, 
What if God had chosen to send Jonah into our land today and preach this message to this nation? And I ask that because as we read of Nineveh, it's not all that dissimilar to our nation as well, is it? Nineveh was was a very prosperous land. It was a place that was large and attractive. It was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. This is where the king of Assyria stayed. And yet this was a land that was full of sin, pride and cruelty that are listed by Isaiah and Nahum just to name two of their sins. And this isn't that unlike our nation as well. right? We are a prosperous nation. We're a prosperous land. This is why people risk life and limb to come here. Because they, they want to be here in this, in this country, in this nation. Yet, we are a nation that is likewise full of sin, pride, and cruelty to name just two of those sins. And just like with the Ninevites, though, this nation too has been blinded by the God of this world. Right? This is what Paul says is the problem, doesn't he? In, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, he says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. But what this ought to make us see is that all that occurred here in Nineveh in our text that we are reading today and that we read last week has occurred all because of God. Right? Jonah's success in preaching to the Ninevites was God-worked success. Right? Jonah had no ability, no strength to remove the scales from the Ninevites' eyes himself. But neither were the Ninevites the difference in why revival was brought to their land and why there was a a mass turning away from sin towards God. In fact, God was the reason. God was the reason for that. And just like in our own land, we desire revival as well, don't we? You hear people talk about this all the time. We need a a revival in our nation. We need a a mass, a corporate, a national kind of repentance and a a turning from our sin and a a turning towards God. But if that is our hope, we, we must know that it will never happen. It will never occur if we think that all we need for a revival to occur is for ministers to kind of figure out a way to get sinners to stop sinning and to turn to God. It will only ever occur if we simply rest and trust in the all-powerful hand of God, who is the igniter of revival. Right? It is God here in our text today who ignited this revival. And see what type of preaching He used to ignite this revival. Right? See this, there were no props. There was no big, beautiful building. There was no band. There was no music. You know, Jesus loves me for this I know, for the Bible tells me so. There was no trying to... In- impress sinners with anything. It was a, a simple message by a simple preacher. And it was not a message dressed up to appeal to the sinner, but rather it was a direct and a poignant message intended to dress down the sinner. And there was no time for fluff. There was no time for pageantry, was there? Nineveh had 40 days. That's all there was. 40 days. We oftentimes... Although we know differently, we act as if we're going to live life forever, don't we? But sadly, what does that cause many, even Christians, to do? To put their Christian life on snooze, doesn't it? And we think that 
well, I can kind of dabble in, in this sin or that sin. I can dabble with the world here and there. I'll, I'll come back to my, to my Christian life later. But brothers and sisters, we don't know what's going to happen 40 seconds from now, let alone 40 days and, and 40 years. This is why the message that Jonah preaches is so relevant and necessary for us today. Because there is a, a timer that has been set already on all of our lives. The button has been pressed. The clock is ticking. And as it continues to tick down, one day it will expire and you don't know when it will. But the all-important question is, is when the clock expires, do you know where you will be? Do you know where, where you will go? Right? Will you be in eternal glory with God or eternal torment in hell? Now, I've pointed out many times over the course of our study in Jonah that there are many themes that we see being played out through, throughout this book. And, and I want us to to point us to one such theme this morning. Now, the theme that we see this morning in our text is a theme of repentance. Right? We see a theme of repentance here. And this theme of repentance, Jonah lays out for us purposely so that when we read and hear it as Jonah's proclaimed to all parts of the earth, that people would hear and see what results when one has repentance and what is the consequences when one does not have it. As Nineveh was a historical people. They were real people, but they also symbolized something greater. They symbolized the, the unbelieving Gentile world here. And so how does Nineveh respond? And, and what does Nineveh's response to this message teach us? That leads us into our, our first point then this morning, which is Nineveh's response to Jonah's sermon. Point number one, Nineveh's response to Jonah's sermon. And what I have for us is, is two sub-points that I want to touch on under point number one. And that first sub-point that I want us to see is that in response to Jonah's sermon, Nineveh believed. Nineveh believed. This is what we're told in verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Now what is probably likely is that verse 5 is a summary Verse 5 is a summary of what happened. And then the, the following verses, 6 to 9, kind of give us in greater detail what verse 5 summarizes. And we see this throughout the Bible. It's, it's not a difficult concept to understand. Think about Genesis 1 and day 6 of creation. Right? We're, we're given, uh, God created male and female. right? But then Genesis 2, what does Genesis 2 do? It unfolds in greater detail what God did on day 6. And so I think that's likely what's going on here. Right? Verse 5 is a summary of what took place. Verses 6 to 9 kind of lay out in greater detail what verse 5 has said. All right? And so we need to see it was, the, it was the king's proclamation issued to the Ninevites that caused them then to put on sackcloth and ashes. Right? But regardless, we need to see that what is the reason why they did this? Right? What, what made the king put forth this proclamation, this declaration to the people. Right? Why was he moved to do this? It was because they believed. But we have to ask though, who was it that they believed? Was it, was it Jonah that they believed? The answer is no, it wasn't Jonah. They believed the message of the God of the Israelites. The word here is actually Elohim. And Gerhardus Voss says that, that that denotes, that name Elohim denotes or conveys the idea of, of the one who is full of majesty. Right? The, the one who is to be feared. 
This is who the Ninevites call out to mightily. This is who they, who they believe, right? Elohim, the God of the Hebrews. They see Jonah. They hear Jonah's voice, but they believe God because they believe that Jonah has been sent by God. Now, what type of faith was it though? Well, it was a faith that offered no rebuttal. It was a faith that offered no complaint. Although the message surely came as a surprise to them. It shocked them. It was hard to accept, but they accepted it. It was, it was a tough pill to swallow, but they swallowed it. Right? Who wants to hear that the entirety of your life has been detestable before the sight of God, and because of it, you're going to be destroyed? It's not an easy thing to hear. Right? That message today will get you suspended on social media sites. Right? People don't want to hear that their lives are displeasing to God. People don't want to hear that what they've been thinking their whole life and doing their whole life God hates. Even if you, if you convey that message lovingly to an unbeliever, they're going to get angry with you. And yet, although this message is not one that people love, what we need to understand is that the truly penitent will not despise this message. And what we need to see here in Jonah's actions is that Jonah here is loving his neighbor and he's loving his neighbor well. What do we read in in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 5? Open rebuke is better than love concealed. What does this world say, though? If you love someone, you don't judge them. If you love someone, you don't call out their immorality in their lives. What does the Scripture tell us? The exact opposite. That to love someone is to point out that sin so that they don't go to hell in their sin. How loving would it have been for Jonah to know that the Ninevites had 40 days before they died and because he didn't want to upset them or offend them, said nothing to them. No, the loving thing to do is to reveal the truth to them, even though it might be unpopular, to reveal the truth so that they might know what the choice is. Continue in your sin and die or repent and perhaps you might be delivered. And the Ninevites could have easily thrown Jonah in jail. They could have killed Jonah. They could have laughed at him, mocked him, ignored him. But what do they do? Instead, they believe. Nineveh believed Jonah. Now, 150 years later, we know that Nineveh is destroyed because of sin. And so the question becomes, you know, how much of this is, was, was a true revival? How much of this is, is true faith placed in the true God? And the answer is, that we don't know for certain. In all probability, there are probably people here who, who did not truly believe. There, in all probability, are people here that simply acted as if they believed, confessed they believed, did these works because the government told them to do it. Right? There are other people who probably did it because they seen this revival going on and they wanted a piece of it. Right? They, they wanted to be a part of it. They wanted to be, be caught up in that. And so they, they did what others did. But this revival, the conversion of many who do believe, no doubt, has its source and its origin in God and in God alone. Right? Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, we, we read this. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever He will. You see, there is no other reason in the world for the king of Nineveh, this pagan king, to debase himself in such a way as we read in verse 6. We read there that when the word reaches him, he gets off his throne. He casts off his royal garb and he puts on sackcloth and ashes. 
Now, what would cause this king to do such a thing? But God working faith in his heart. And this is what God does in the heart of everyone here who believes. Right? He, he debases us. He brings us low. But he, he works faith in our hearts. Right? This is what we read in, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. For it has been granted to you to believe. In Ephesians 2.8, for faith is a gift of God. And because it's a gift given by God and God is a God of the living living and not the dead, your faith likewise is not a dead faith, but a living faith. A faith that ought to cause you to act then. It is an act of faith. And this is what we see in our message today, isn't it? That they believe and then it causes them to act. And this is the second thing then that I want us to see under point number one. This is our second sub-point then as Nineveh is preached to by Jonah, their response not only is to believe, but it's also to repent. Right? So sub-point number two is, is repentance. We need to see faith and repentance go hand in hand. Faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. Right? You cannot have one without the other. And if you do, then you do not have true conversion. Yet also see this, faith preceded their repentance. Right? They believed and it caused them to act. They believed they were guilty of sin. They believed they were de- deserving of death. And this is what their repentance then shows forth. It shows forth what it was that they believed. But I want us to also see that there wasn't just a change in the intellectual life of the Ninevites, but there was also a change in the emotional life of the Ninevites as well. Right? Knowledge of sin caused them to do what? It produced, as Paul says, godly sorrow in their lives, which led them to repentance. This is why we're told that in verse 5, they called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest to them to the least of them. In fact, in verse 7, we read that the king issued a proclamation saying that by decree, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. Verse 8, But let man and beast be covered in sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from their evil way and, and from violence that is in their hands. Now sackcloth was literally the, the, the cloth used to make sacks. Right? This was a penitential garb, a, a penitential garment that they would, they would wrap themselves in. And then they would sit in ashes as a sign of deep mourning before God. Okay, That's what they are being called to do. Now you might say though, well, why are animals having having to do this as well? And the answer is, well, do you see the the sinfulness of of Nineveh? I mean, God is ready to wipe the entirety of of Nineveh out. Everything included. It is an all-encompassing judgment. Not only on the people, but on the land, on the animals, on the beasts. And so they, they likewise wrap their animals in sackcloth as well. And then we're told they call out mightily to God in prayer so that He would not destroy them. Now what I want us to see is that this repentance, true repentance, really has three main ingredients to it. Okay, There are three main ingredients to repentance. It is contrition, it is confession, and it is conversion. 
right? Contrition, confession, conversion. And we see this here with the Ninevites, right? They are, they are sorrowful over their sin. They are sorrowful, which makes them put on the sackcloth and sit in ashes and to cry out to God. Right? They confess them, we're told. Right? They confess their sin. They, they cry out to the Lord so that He might not destroy them. But then they also turn from their sin. We see a conversion there. Not only a changing of mind, but a changing of desires and will and, and attitude and action. They turn away from their sin and they turn towards God. All three of those elements here are described in what we see of the Ninevites. And yet as we see that, brothers and sisters, as we read about what true repentance is, we have to ask, are those same elements found in your own repentance? Are those same elements found in your own repentance? And I'm not talking about your kind of first repentance when you first came to faith in Christ. I'm talking about in your, in your daily repentance. Right? In your daily repentance. Because true faith springs forth a constant and a continual repentance of true believers. Right? True faith will always be met with repentance upon the discovery of sin. And brothers and sisters, we sin every single day of our lives. So once you understand what Christ did, when you understand it was because of your sin that He was placed upon that cross, sin ought to affect you. When you, when you think about, when you take time to spend thinking of God's love towards you and that He sent Christ there to die for you when you were unworthy of it, then not to, to pain your soul when you see the perfect love of God towards you, but then you recognize that your own love towards Him is so often lacking and imperfect. But what I also want us to see is that the presence of sin Likewise, though, does not disqualify you from the faith. Right? The presence of sin in your life doesn't disqualify you. We are all sinners. We are all sinners. And we struggle with sin. And we're going to continue to struggle with it for the entirety of our lives. This is what Romans 7 is talking about. This is what Paul is dealing with. Sometimes you may even sin grievously. Think of David. Think of Peter. Yet that automatically should not make you think that you are no longer a believer. What ought to make you think you are no longer a believer is if you can sin against God. If you can know that you are sinning against God and not repent of it. What ought to make you question if you are a true believer is if you can sin against God and not feel the, the nagging burn in your soul to cry out to Him mightily that He might not strengthen you so that you would not commit that sin against Him ever again. And then you can question that. But also, I want us to see how important the role of prayer is in repentance. This is, in a sense, sad. Right? The, the king and the Ninevites, these, these great immoral people, knew more about repentance than many Christians do today who spend... 10, 20, 30, 40 years in church. Right? The, the king decrees that everyone cries out mightily to God in prayer. But this is a people just prior to that sermon who didn't know anything about true religion. But as soon as the powerful word came with the mighty spear, all of that changed. And so we see here, brothers and sisters, the difference between just the word of God coming and the word of God coming with all power 
according to the decree of God where He efficaciously transforms the sinner by the preaching of the Word. And so we have to ask, has, has God's Word met with your heart with such power? Right? Has God's Word met with your heart with that, with that sort of power? If it has, then you're going to be someone who continually is turning to God in prayer often. You're going to be someone who, who turns to God in prayer often. You're going to be someone who, who repents often of your sin. You'll be someone who, who feels compelled in the very depths of your soul to seek out forgiveness in the loving arms of your Father whenever you sin. Why? Because you know that there is no safer place to be in the world than in the loving arms of your Father. And you know that there is no more dangerous place to be than to be one who is a sinner and who goes on sinning and who does not come to the all-embracing arms of God to find cleansing from that sin. But what ought to make us go there? What ought to make us go to His arms? What is it that made the, the king take such drastic measures and, and, and proclaim this decree to all of the Ninevites? Well, this leads us into point two this morning then, which is the basis of Nineveh's turning toward God and from sin. The basis of Nineveh's turning toward God and from sin. And like with point number one, I have two sub-points for us here as well. And also, I'll let you know ahead of time, this is our, our final point this morning as well. So two sub-points that I want us to see that make the Ninevites right, believe and repent of their sin. And so that, that first sub-point is they put on sackcloth and ashes. They believe, they cry out mightily out of fear. They do it out of fear. As the Dutch Reformed theologian Wilhelmus Abrakel says, fear is either expressive of reverence or terror. Okay, fear is, ex is expressive of reverence or terror. He also says, fear issues forth from love though. That is either love for yourself or love for God. Right? Fear issues forth from, from love, but it's love of yourself or love of God. Right? Self-love, as most of us probably know, right, causes us to fear what might happen to us if we do something. And so we don't do it because we, we fear what might happen to us. We fear the punishment. Now there are a great many in Nineveh who, who probably experience that, that type of fear here in our text which many theologians would call slavish fear. It is slavish fear, which is to say that the Ninevites, many of them, put on the sackcloth and ashes and they, and they cry out mightily because they don't want to die. Right? They, they do it out of self-preservation. They want to try to preserve their life as long as they can and so, and so they do what the king proclaims that they are to do. Right? But they don't truly believe. They don't truly repent. This is just an outward sign of contrition and confession. But it goes no deeper than that outward sign. Right? There was no true conversion. There was no godly sorrow. It was out of slavish fear because they don't want their master to punish them that they do these things. Now this type of fear, though, is not always bad. Slavish fear isn't always bad. It is if it's the only motivating factor that causes you to go to God. But slavish fear isn't bad if it if it causes you to spiritually awaken, is it? No. 
But for the saint, the type of fear that ought to dominate in our hearts is filial fear. Filial fear is a fear generated by God in the heart of the believer that now, out of reverence for God, we are resolved to not do anything to displease God. Right? Filial fear is that fear that God works only in the hearts of saints, whereby, out of love of God, we try to not do anything to displease God. And that is because now to the believer, God is lovely. God is gracious. God is merciful. God is good. And so that's the fear that causes us to obey and to, and to not disobey. Not because we're scared of what God is going to do to us. And although believers ought to fear God, there are many who are dominated by slavish fear who fill the, the, the seats of the church. Right? There are many people who, who go to church every single Sunday because they are trying to avoid hell. There are many people who, who show up to church on Sundays because they think that God might make their life miserable if they don't do it. They show up to church on Sunday to worship God because they believe things tend to go better in my life when I'm here and when I'm not, things tend to not be so well. And so they do it because they think it benefits them. Right? They do it so that they are not punished by their master, but their motivation is self-love, not love of God. But what these people need to understand is that this type of worship, this type of obedience is displeasing to God. It's unworthy and it's worthless before God. And He does not accept it. Right? External shows of repentance without inward sincerity of heart that moves us and motivates us by love of God to obey Him is worthless in the sight of God. This is what the Lord says to the Israelites in Isaiah Chapter 58. And I would ask that you would turn there with me this morning so that we can read that text together. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 58. Here in Isaiah, we're given a, a good example of, of what I'm talking about here. In Isaiah 58, starting in verse 1, we read this Cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They, they ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? This is what the Israelites are saying. Right? Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves? And God, you take no knowledge of it. And what does God say? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. And you oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? 
Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and He will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloomy be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt and you shall raise up the foundation of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it not going your ways, or seeking your pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride in the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So you see, the Israelites were fasting but living in sin, thinking that just by fasting, God was supposed to bless them and hear them and answer them. And God says, No, your outward fasting is worthless to me. It means nothing to me if it is not met, met with sincerity of heart inwardly as well. Don't just outwardly obey what I say, but inwardly you ought to be calling my Sabbath a delight. This is what's pleasing to the Lord. For all of you here, I pray that you come to understand though that that true faith casts out, for the most part, slavish fear in the hearts of the saints because, because true faith provides for the believer hope. It provides hope for us. Here's the second sub-point then that I want us to see. What motivates them to believe and to repent is one, fear, but number two, hope. And this is what we see in verse 9. We read this, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from His fierce anger so that we may not perish. As I said earlier, right? fear alone is a motivating factor to turn from sin and to go to God is not sufficient. But here we see that fear is met with hope. Right? Here's the difference between someone just kind of reforming themselves morally, kind of just doing good things, and true conversion. Here's the difference between the two of them. Right? True conversion embraces God. It believes God. It, it works in heart gratitude towards God. It causes us to repent of our sin against God because we revere God. All the while, we are being carried along by hope that has been provided to us by God. And we see this in someone like, like Noah. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11 and verse 7, we're told this, By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. He believed and obeyed. But what was behind that? It was that filial fear. And it was hope that caused him to, to believe and to obey and to do that which he has not yet seen, what God had promised would happen. Which is why he spends year after year after year constructing the ark. 
And God likewise, in stoking faith in the hearts of many of the Ninevites, has, has caused them to, to likewise reach out for hope. This is what we see in their response. Who knows? God may turn. He may relent if we turn from our wicked ways. That's hope. They say God has sent His prophet Jonah to preach to us. There must be hope. Let us reach for that hope. The God who, who, who saved and delivered Jonah from his own rebellion and sin, perhaps that same God will deliver us from our wickedness and sin if, if we turn from it and we call out to Him mightily in faith and repentance. And we'll see next week what, what transpires. But we all know, brothers and sisters, hopefully firsthand for all of us, that, that God is a God who is ready to be reconciled to sinners. He's a God who is ready to be reconciled to sinners. This is the very reason He gives Israel all the prophets. This is the reason why He gives the Ninevites Jonah. This is one of the reasons why Christ comes as the great prophet. This is why God continues to send ministers and, and they spread forth throughout the world. Because God is a God who is merciful and who delights in showing mercy. Who is ready to be reconciled to sinners. And Jesus Christ has come into the world to do what? To reconcile us to God. This is why we read in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus say, Come to me all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And to those who do, what does He promise? He promises that you will eat from the tree of everlasting life in the paradise of God forever. That is what He promises. Is that your hope here today? Does the, this promise cause your faith to act? Does the hope of glory with God and beholding the face of your Savior forever cause you to strive after never displeasing Him again? But also, does that God-given faith that you have cause you not to lose hope even when you do displease Him? The warning passages in Scripture are given to excite us to faith and obedience and repentance. They are given to awaken and enliven our faith. To cause us to be on alert. They are given to prick us when we are backsliding. And I hope that is what they do in your life when you read Types of passages like this. this. This ought to be the response of the Christian. It ought to drive you to repentance. It ought to drive you to repentance. A repentance that brings forth though contrition, confession, and conversion. But it must be a repentance that is always met with faith, hope, and love. Right? Love towards God and what He has done for you. Calling out to Him in repentance because you have sinned against a holy and just God. But that repentance being met with faith. Right? Believing that God is who He said He is and that you are who He has called you to be. And yet, coming with that hope that God is not just going to destroy you, but that if you approach His throne of grace in all humility, that He will be quick to reconcile you to Him. Right? That He will be quick to reconcile you to Himself. For that pleases Him. For He desires, He loves to show mercy to sinners. This is why Jesus can say, that in heaven there is more joy over the repentance of one sinner than there is for 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Brothers and sisters, we need to see that as the Gospel goes forth, 
that God is, is there and he's, he's holding His hands out. And He's offering deliverance to all of those who would, who would come and ask for it. So the question is, have you? Have you? And are you quick to do it when you sin? Are you quick to seek deliverance in the arms of your Savior when you sin? And not just with words or outward actions, but with all sincerity of heart, desiring to have that fellowship again, to have restoration, to have reconciliation with God. For those who do, believe and trust that God will answer that prayer. For this is why He sent His Son into the world. This is why Christ came to suffer and to hang upon the cross and to be buried in the grave and to be raised on the third day and to ascend on high. It was not because God has removed all hope for us, but rather He has done that to give us hope in Christ. That is the hope that He has provided to the Ninevites in our text today. That is the hope that He provides for all of you this morning. But do not approach His majestic throne unless you are coming to Him in repentance. For it is only on being on one's knees that you can ever hope from, for pardon with God. And so may we be a, a people who are quick to believe. May we be a people who are ready to repent in all humility out of reverential fear for God, but, but a fear that is always accompanied by a hope. Right? A hope in the merciful God that, that He will be merciful to those who come looking and crying out to the Lord for His mercy. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful and grateful for Your Word this morning. We are so thankful for Your written Word that You have given to Your people. We are thankful for the Holy Spirit who You have indwelt us with, who has given us spiritual eyes to see and spiritual ears to hear. Lord, may You cause us this morning uh, to see the importance of faith and repentance. And not just for unbelievers, but for each one of us in our own daily lives. Teach us, Lord, what true repentance is. That it is uh, contrition, confession, and conversion. And we pray, Lord, that You would make us a people uh, quick to throw ourselves down before, before Your your throne of grace, uh, pleading and hoping for the mercy of your deliverance in Christ Jesus our Savior. And we ask this all in Christ's name we pray. Amen.